0: Hello, and welcome to Star Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, and today we're going to be exploring the topic of deep time. We've got an incredible guest that's going to be joining us on this. But before we get into this discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe YouTube channel, and follow us on social media at RTB official so that you can be informed of our new videos uh, and our context uh, and content that we produce. So with that, uh, let me introduce uh, our special guest. Uh, As you are all probably aware, we have a scholar community, now over 180 doctoral-level scholars around the world in different disciplines that partner with our staff scholars to develop new reasons to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. And uh, Steve, I'm just going to read what they gave me here so I don't get anything wrong. And now I'm old enough that I have to put glasses on when I read, so uh, give me a minute. Steve Mitweed earned his Master's of Science and PhD at the University of South Carolina. His doctoral work focused on the geology and tectonic history of a supposed terrain boundary in northwestern South Carolina, and particularly on possible evidence for a suture zone in the central Piedmont. Though he has taught middle and high school science for the last decade, he also engages in collaborative scientific research. His current research concerns an unusual Messick biocrust community in northern Alabama and a geochronological investigation of panned heavy mineral concentrates from streams draining, draining the Cat Square terrain, interpreted more recently as a soloro Devonian remnant ocean basin west of Gaffney, South Carolina. Steve also has two graduate theological degrees and an EDS. And educational leadership. He serves in his home church in a variety of capacities and especially enjoys the opportunity to teach the Bible and theology. Well, Steve, it's a pleasure to engage someone who's so deep in both of God's books, the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture. And I think this is the first time we've actually had you on Stars, Cells, and God, and I'm really intrigued by the topic you're bringing today, Deep time. I mean, if you visit any of the young earth uh, creation museums, they basically say that deep time is the enemy of the Christian faith. And you know, when I was looking at the different religions of the world, it was the recognition of God's testimony in deep time that was a major factor in my coming to faith in Christ. So I love the fact that you're going to be sharing with us how we can transform deep time from being an enemy of the Bible and the Christian faith, as to being one of the strongest allies of Christianity in establishing that a God beyond space and time exists and has the power and the love and the uh, you know, truth to basically in, engage us in a relationship with Him for the rest of eternity. So Steve, why don't you explain to us, first of all, the term, what do you mean by deep time? And what do the creationists mean when they use the word deep time? And how can we kind of begin the dialogue?
1: Hugh, I should uh, confess that some years ago I had gotten a free copy of a college earth science textbook. This was not when I was a student. This was much later. I think perhaps I was at a at a conference, a convention of some sort, and I remember looking in one of the early sections of the book and there was obviously there was a context to this but there was a sentence in it that struck me as being really unusual and that sentence was time was invented in 1788 and i thought well how could that possibly make sense people have been in one way or another thinking about time for millennia and maybe keeping time in different ways but time was is people have always kept track of time they may have used a solar sort of calendar they may have used a lunar calendar or lunar solar calendar but people have always thought about time and the passage of time and and yet what was meant in the context of that book was that the first time that people started to realize perhaps that there was this idea of a time that was beyond seconds and minutes and hours and years, but, and beyond millennia, for that matter, going into, as you can appreciate, things like light years. Uh, and, and, of course, it was James Hutton, a geologist in the UK, who proposed some of those ideas, and his book came out, the following year and was later popularized by Charles Lyell. And these ideas, of course, really were the springboard for the development of the geological sciences as we know them today. And so deep time is just a recognition that, that there's a lot more to, to time than uh, its passage that we calculate with, with time pieces, but that, that spans, again, light years. Uh, And uh, in the context of geology, we're talking about a planet, planet Earth that has a history of 4.3 billion years. So that is a significant thing that that we need to come to grips with. And I think that even though there would be some people in in the larger Christian community who struggle with the possibility of, of... time in in of of that magnitude that really that i think that that's really what david may be getting at in in psalm 39 when he asked god to to show him the length of his days he he didn't want to know the day he was going to die he wanted to understand under understand how minuscule he was in the in this in the scheme of things and yet God was concerned for him and I think that that's a a helpful thing that as we look at at passages like Psalm 39 verses 4 through 7 and uh, from the end of of James chapter 4 this idea that we're just a a breath just uh, like the the fog that we get so often here in northern Alabama that it, it's there for a short time, but by 9 or 10 in the morning, it's gone. And that's actually a helpful thing for Christians to understand how we fit into the, into the larger scheme of things, but to make the most of the time that we have uh, to the glory of God.
0: Well, Steve, when I was first reading the Bible, I was impressed that geological deep time shows up in many Old Testament texts you know, where you got David talking about the ancient hills, uh, the old mountains, uh, talks about the Kidron River and how ancient and old that river is. And I think what's happening there is you've got the Israelites, David in particular, observing the erosion patterns that he sees in the hills and mountains, the talus that he sees at the bottom of the Judean hills, and just seeing the uh, meandering of the Kidron River, realizing This is testifying of geological deep time. These are processes that are not happening quickly. It's happening over many, many millennia.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I try to to emphasize with my students is that people have different viewpoints about Earth's history and specifically about the passage of time. And that we need to, to come to grips with those different viewpoints look at the merits or demerits of, of those different positions, but realize that whatever people are assuming about time, the depth of time or uh, the converse of that, uh, the shallowness of time, that that actually drives the way that they view the planet uh, and the way that they view their, their place in their ecosystem, in the environment and things like that. And so I really love uh, the book Why Geology Matters, uh, a book by uh, Doug McDougall, and the subtitle is great. It's Decoding the Past, Anticipating the Future. And so this is one reason I find this so important is it's not just, oh, let's study rocks and fossils and figure out things about Earth's history, but as we understand more of earth's history that can help us to be responsible uh, as we hopefully seek to obey the what's called that has been called the dominion mandate the creation mandate
0: well what impresses me steve is uh that we see precise deep time everything's exactly the right time duration i mean my own discipline of astronomy i'm amazed You make the universe the tiniest bit younger or older, it eliminates the possibility of advanced life. We're here at the precise time. Uh, We're here at a precise time in the Sun's history, the Earth's history. So it's not just the recognition that, yes, we're looking at millions and billions of years. We're looking at a very precise number of millions of billions of years, making it the tiniest bit older or younger uh, then we wouldn't be here this shows me just how carefully God has planned everything, that everything is precisely at the right time, which means what's happening in my life also is being very carefully timed second by second. So as I see the perfect timing in the universe and the earth, it helps me realize the same thing's happening in my own life.
1: Yeah, if that, it, it really is stunning to realize that the God who created and sustains everything, who has been working out his purposes over eons is mindful of me. Yes. And of course, Psalm eight uh, is, is so great in that. Uh, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He, he cares about me. He cares about you. He cares about the, the, the fine details of our life. And again, we can understand our place uh, as we come to grips with the different ways that we approach Earth's history. And hopefully our discussion will will lead to a, a bit of clarification of what I mean by the different views of, of Earth's history.
0: Well, why don't you start with that? Uh, let, let's get going on this.
1: Well, as I approach my students on this subject, the first view of Earth's history that some of us maybe tacitly adopt is a view that I just call stasis. Uh, To help the the students remember this, I say that stasis basically assumes that everything stays the same. And I can just imagine one of my students with their families going to a, a ski resort or something in Colorado and sitting in every year, year after year, they go to the resort, they look across a valley and they see this majestic peak and say, just think, that's been here since the beginning, right? And we we may have those sorts of, of notions, but as we study geology, we, we understand that the processes of mountain building uh, take place, they could take place catastrophically, but our understanding of things as we view, as we study uh, Earth processes, is that that usually most of these processes are taking place over vast, vast periods of time. And so, stasis really just doesn't work. Even though we may think that way and talk that way, we know that even on a rainy day, a a stream that we might drive over, a, a river that we might drive over, Looks different on the rainy day that it did on the very clear, calm day, right? And that's because of the sediment load that's being carried by that that stream or river. It has increased because of the water flow, and those processes are incremental, gradual sorts of processes. And of course, that sediment load is carried to a different location where it will be deposited. Uh, it could be deposited in a delta. It could be deposited in a Stream bar, river bar, uh, something like that. and this is this is critical uh, as as I deal with with young people to help them to realize, yeah, things are changing all the time. Of course, Plato uh, quotes Heraclitus uh, saying, he says you could not step twice into the same river. And so what Heraclitus, this Greek thinker, uh, five hundred BC or so, was introducing a doctrine of universal flux, that things are constantly changing. And, of course, when we're thinking about Earth processes, we we realize, yeah, things are changing. I study, in addition to Earth's processes, I study the sun with my students. And the simple fact that today that there are a whole lot of sunspots, complex sunspots, Whereas just a few years ago, there were hardly any sunspots at all because of the nature of solar cycles. That's a significant thing because it affects life on Earth, right? And all it requires is studying something like the 1859 Carrington event, and you say, wow, if a Carrington event, a a massive solar flare coronal mass ejection event struck Earth today was not repelled by Earth's very finely tuned magnetic system uh, in the magnetosphere, we could be, again, as one scientist has said, without communication, without electricity for extremely long period of time. And so it's significant, not just in earth science, but in, in your field, in ast- astrophysics, in solar physics, to understand things are changing. And there's a, there's a reason that there's a a space weather prediction agency now, right? Because people understand that the that this flux that takes place in the core of the sun, with its magnetic fields and and the activity, which of course is all driven by nuclear fusion, that that we need to we need to track these things because of the how we live. the The nature of modern society is dependent upon. The communications and upon the electrical systems the big grids that we have to power uh, modern life so stasis is just one of the views that i think is fairly easy to discard a second view that's that's been around for quite a while is catastrophism and historically catastrophists were people who sort of put as i understand it most of their eggs into the the biblical flood basket and uh, it's not that something like the biblical flood didn't really happen, but we need to understand exactly as we use earth science and the tools of earth science to understand exactly what the implications of that are uh, for helping us to understand Earth's history. I think it's it's it would be a dangerous thing for an earth scientist every time they go to an outcrop of rock to say, ah. This this is evidence of the flood, because even though we need to understand how the biblical flood fits into the the picture of our understanding of scripture and our understanding of the book of nature, that we have to be careful not to overstep uh, what is actually revealed. But by, by both books, the 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 word of God as well as uh, the book of nature. The third view that uh, really has gotten a lot of play historically in earth science is uniformitarianism and sort of the the maxim that really held sway for a long time in earth sciences is the present is the key to the past. In other words, by looking at present rates, present processes, that we can understand how those things operated in the past in in geologic history. The strong emphasis on uniformitarianism is the gradual, the incremental, the very slow bit by bit sorts of things that really do typify many geologic processes. In catastrophism, there was a strong emphasis on the sudden, the violent, but in uniformitarianism, the slow, the incremental. And I think that there's a reason why Christian scientists can discard stasis, can discard catastrophism, and can discard uniformitarianism because they don't really answer all the questions or don't give us a framework for answering all the questions. So I actually prefer, and it's a a term that I did not coin, but that's been in use for for some time in geology is the term actualism and actualism the way that I understand it means that as a scientist I have to be ready to give an account and to try to understand all actual processes that could have affected Earth's history, whether they be perhaps catastrophic sorts of things or The gradual, the incremental, the little by little, bit by bit sorts of processes. And what that means is that I can, as as a scientist, can recognize that God can work miraculously, but at the same time, God can use processes over eons uh, to accomplish his purposes in the the physical earth, as well as in uh, the lives of people. And I think that one of the things that is curious to me, is that there are some Christians who think that God is necessarily more glorified if something happens rapidly. And that is really quite a curious, curious sort of thing to me, Uh, not saying that I have not, at different points in my my life, uh, held on to such ideas, but the big, the big thing is that God's plan of redemption is being worked out again over vast periods of time and that it's not an instantaneous thing. I think even of, of the term that the, the Lamb of God is slain before the foundation of the world, that that means something, right? And And this process is an ongoing process as we think about creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately restoration, the consummation of all things.
0: Well, I love the fact, Steve, you're basically addressing the false dichotomy when it comes to Christian debate over geology and deep time. It's often framed as a debate between uniformitarianism and catastrophism. And I like your term actualism, because what we're really seeing is that The earth, the universe, it's governed by laws of physics that don't change. But those unchanging laws of physics, the uniformitarianism, if you like, allows for repeated catastrophes. So it's not a choice between catastrophism and uniformitarianism. It's both. There are these uniformitarian processes. The Bible declares the laws of physics don't change. That's why we can trust our senses. That's why we can do science. And realize we're uncovering truth but it allows for catastrophism and catastrophism as you pointed out within certain christian circles is the idea that there's one catastrophe whereas a geological record rudy really testifies of multiple time separated catastrophes as through our study of deep time geology we recognize there hasn't just been one flood there hasn't just been one volcanic eruption There's been multiple catastrophes, and we can actually date when these catastrophes are and recognize that they have exactly the date we need in order for us humans to thrive on earth today. And so by recognizing uh, that, hey, it's not either or, it's both and, we can really get a grip on what the geological record is telling us and how it really backs up what the Bible's been teaching for thousands of years.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just looking into a book by Ronald Parker, Professor, professor Ronald Parker, yesterday, his book, Inscrutable Earth, the very last paragraph of his book I find uh, delightful. He says, catastrophes are just cyclic events that result from large energy storage capacity. Gradualism as a principle applies only to the way energy is provided to the system. Earth at a more or less steady rate. The result of gradualism is necessarily always cyclic and frequently catastrophic. Catastrophes are forever.
0: Very good. You know, just like these Grand Canyon tours, where people go down, they look at all the different layers, and, uh, you know, if you go with the young Earth creationists, they point out all the layers where catastrophic events have happened. But they ignore all the layers where gradual processes are operating. But I've right. also seen the reverse, where all the focus is on the gradual and they ignore the catastrophic. We need to be open to looking at all that God has revealed to us in the geological record.
1: Yeah, I I, I think I've grown substantially in my appreciation of this over my years of of doing research as a, as a geologist in. I, I've lived obviously in this country in the U.S. for many years, but I lived abroad and I worked on uh, a lot of fascinating uh, geological and geoarchaeological problems when I lived in the Middle East, specifically in Turkey. And I I think that probably when I went to university, because I thought that it's what Christians believed, that I, I tilted toward sort of a young earth view and i think that not just because of what i've read or because somebody has twisted my arm or uh, you know some university professor said you're you're foolish for believing a certain thing but just actually being honest with what's revealed in scripture and honest with what's revealed in the book of nature it has it's clarified a lot of things for me personally as well as help me to clarify things to my students. I think when a lot of people deal with history, they become uncomfortable. First of all, a lot of people find history to be, you know, dry as dust, right? And so it's all dates, it's all this, it's all that, and and with a wave of the hand, they do away with it. Well, the fact of the matter is my science, geology, is historical science. And we specifically are looking at documents, rocks and fossils that help us to understand the history of the planet. And I'm, I'm currently involved in some research that specifically is trying to do exactly that. Uh, I'm collaborating with some people at the University of Kentucky, I'm collaborating with some people uh, at the University of South Carolina, specifically using the geochronological things, radiometric dating to help understand things about the tectonic history of uh, Northwestern South Carolina, the central Piedmont. And it's fascinating, as, as you think about these different types of uh, isotopic ratios and, and how they can be counted on because there is a God of order who has established things that operate in certain ways so that we can do meaningful science and study this planet and understand what this planet has experienced. Again, as Doug McDougall says in his book, decode the past and anticipate the future.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, you had this uh, young Earth uh, upbringing early. And, uh, you know, in the young Earth community, there's this mantra that historical science can't be trusted. Clearly, you do trust historical science. Can you give us some examples of why geological historical science is trustworthy and reliable
1: well as I, I just mentioned radiometric dating i've on a number of occasions have used radiometric dating in the research that i've been doing years ago i studied a, a granitic pluton a granitic intrusion in northwestern south carolina called apocolite granite or monzo granite and uh, with a fellow from the University of North Carolina, we did rubidium-strontium dating of that pluton. Uh, it, even though some more recent studies of rubidium-strontium dating have exposed some, uh, some weaknesses potentially of using rubidium and strontium, there are other radiometric methods that, uh, again, scientists are are using and applying to solve geological problems. When I was living in in Turkey, I was working with a former professor from the University of South Carolina to study historical slags from mining operations. Some of these dated back to the first century uh, AD, and some were were only maybe 120 years old. Uh, And we used carbon-14 dating. And we got extremely realistic, believable dates on the the charcoal that we were finding inside of slag. So the slag was of course produced during the smelting process. The slag is sort of like in scripture where it talks about dross, this leftover stuff. And we were able to uh, extricate charcoal from inside of the slag. So it would be coeval with with that smelting. And we would be able to get a picture of, okay, so when was this? Deposit mine, when were they smelting this? And that's that's useful. It helps we were actually able to, to look at certain iron slags from Central Turkey and to, to realize that there were the reason that the mining and the smelting was happening then is because of certain military actions that were happening uh, in that part of the world at that time. There was the need for those resources, which again is one of the great things about geology. Without geology, uh, you know, engineers don't have anything to work with <laughs> because everything is an earth material, right? Almost everything that we use comes from earth, and so we were actually able to clarify certain things about military and cultural history as we study these slides and some but of the things that they're bringing out, up.
0: Steve is that uh, you know, radiometric dating is reliable, but you got to use the right radiometric tool. Every radiometric tool has a range where it's very reliable and trustworthy, but also ranges where it's going to give you useless dates, because if you're way off from the half-life, you're not going to get a good date. You can't use uranium dating to date Bible manuscripts. The manuscripts are way too young. You can't use carbon-14 to date the age of the moon, uh, because the moon is much too old. And so... I think lay people had this idea that a single radiometric tool, we scientists think it can be used on everything. No, each tool has a specific range where it works and where it doesn't work. And it's all based on the constancy of the laws of physics, but those laws of physics apply at different times in different ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to, to even consider dating the paculate granite with something like carbon 14, First of all, it doesn't contain organic carbon, so it's not going to be useful. Uh, Second, yeah, it's much too old considering the the half-life of of carbon. And so uh, I'm I'm currently involved in, uh, I've sent a specimen to University of South Carolina, a a garnet-rich rock, and it's using a a completely new method that I never heard about when I was being uh, trained as a geoscientist, but that's being used regularly now is lutetium hafnium dating, which of course rare earth elements. And we don't know if it's going to work for this particular specimen, but if it does work, it could be almost a, a Rosetta Stone type of thing to help solve some of the, the questions uh, regarding tectonic activity in the central Piedmont of South Carolina.
0: Yeah, these daughter products from radiometric decay are also an effective way to get accurate dates. So uh, there's a huge uh, range of possible ways we can advance. That's happening in my own discipline of astronomy, measuring how much plutonium was on the early Earth by looking at the daughter products.
1: Yeah, I I think the other thing to remember about Earth's history and how we view it is to realize that the history, uh, and actually Doug McDougall in his book, Why Geology Matters, he, he says that the, the, the narrative of our planet's evolution as we know it today is a superb scientific achievement. It is also a story in revision. Uh, that's the nature of history, isn't it? Uh, there are things not only that our understanding is developing because we're getting better tools, uh, other methods to use to evaluate Earth's processes, but our un- it's not just the technology that's improving, our understanding and how well we put things together. I, as I teach my students, I, 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 I say anyone can collect data. If you've got certain tools, anyone can be taught some sort of a, a routine that they go through to collect data. I said the challenge comes is if 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 all of that data is like dots in a connect the dots drawing. The question isn't whether or not you can collect data, it's if you can make sense out of the data. And how do you connect the dots? All of us as children probably did little connect the dots. I don't wanna to sound too uh, privileged or, or Western here, but uh, certainly in, in Western societies, people, you know, kids get these, these connect the dots things. If you do the dots, connect them properly, you get a meaningful image, right? Maybe it's a duck, maybe it's a donkey, maybe it's a flower. Well, it's not that straightforward because everything in nature is not numbered sequentially so that you know how to to put everything together. And so that's one of the, the beautiful things about earth science is it's, there would be people who would say, we can't trust this. It's all just sort of made up. But our whole legal system is based upon a legal historical method and we don't have problems accepting documentary evidence when it's introduced in a court of law, but we seem to have problems dealing with documentary evidence when it's given to us by the book of nature. And so we've got to say, yes, humility requires that I say, I can, I can connect the dots incorrectly. But when we connect the dots correctly, and again, over time, as our, as our understanding of uh, the science and, and geology is a fairly young science, as sciences go, we can get a clearer and clearer picture. And that's where the challenge really is in, in scientific research is not collecting data. Anyone can collect data, but connecting the dots in a way that's meaningful and actually represents, gives us a true picture of reality. And that's what we're after.
0: I like your comment about clarification, how, you know, no history is totally comprehensive and accurate, but the more we study it, the more accurate and clear picture we can get. And in terms, terms of geology and deep time, as we're getting more accurate dates, getting more comprehensive picture of what's going on, if we see we're getting a tighter and tighter fit, as we get a clearer and clearer picture of what the Bible is taught, for thousands of years, that to me is a great encouragement to my Christian faith. I mean, the fact that today we can measure the age of the earth to five places the decimal, and how that actually gives us a clearer picture of God's glory in creation, because we've got better data, we've got more comprehensive data, and it's actually able to reveal uh, God's glory in ways we've never seen before. So, in that sense, geology as it progresses, can progressively give us a stronger and stronger faith. What's your response to that? What do you think? How's it worked for you?
1: I think that's true. I I think that, uh, I think my faith is more mature and deeper than it's ever been. uh, Because I, I appreciate that there are different ways, and I actually developed a diagram probably over 20 years ago, I call it the three realms of knowing, and there's the scientific realm of knowing, there's the documentary realm of knowing, and there's the metaphysical realm of knowing. And all of those are absolutely critical that we realize that we can get true knowledge out of each of these realms, and that all of these realms actually fit together Uh, The late Stephen Jay Gould, who was a paleobiologist at Harvard, he wrote a book, and you probably know of it, Hugh, uh, Rocks of Ages, and in that book, he uh, presented the idea of non-overlapping magisteria, and I think the the big problem that uh, Stephen Jay Gould had was even though he had a high regard for uh, geosciences, uh, as well as a, a apparently high regard for uh, religious faith, as soon as you say that these things don't overlap in any way, you start to get into some hot water, uh, pretty significant hot water. And for me as a Christian, if if I followed the, the very ironic proposal of, of Stephen Jay Gould, I'm sure that when push came to shove, he would have said, we need the science, we need religion, but never the twain shall meet. Well, well hold on. If a miracle has ever happened, even once, that science is, is <laughs> that metaphysics is getting in the way of, of some, somebody else's science. And so as, as a scientist, I understand that all truth is God's truth. Uh, that wherever we find it, it's consistent with his character, his will and his plan. And so that means I can get truth from the scientific method or from the documentary method or from the metaphysical method where God has revealed things. And that helps me to get a fuller, truer picture of reality. And I need that. Yeah. That gives me confidence for living.
0: Well, I remember one of Stephen Gould's essays, I mean, he has an atheistic worldview and he tried to put this boundary, uh, between the science and uh, religion. I remember him commenting, he says, I can't stop them from interdigitating with one another. They do penetrate. I don't like it, but they do. Uh, and right. uh, you know, we who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's more than just interdigitating. There's a deep overlap uh, between the two. But as we wrap this up, I want you to share a couple of specific examples in your own geological studies of how this actually strengthen your faith. You made the comment that, hey, as I get into this uh, geological studies, it makes my faith stronger. Can you give a personal example?
1: Well, I think things that are comforting to me is as I deal with things like natural disasters, as I teach my students about plate tectonics, and Uh, The types of things that happened at at many plate margins, things like devastating earthquakes, such as the ones that happened in February in southeastern Turkey, uh, a land that I love and people that I love. Uh, As as I study those sorts of things, as I study uh, massive volcanic eruptions like Krakatoa in 1883 or Mount Tambora in, in 1815, these are eruptions that Effect, affected the whole climate of the entire planet for extended periods of time because of the simple amount of ash that was put into the atmosphere uh, or, or, or things like tsunamis that are sometimes, of course, generated uh, by earthquakes. But these sorts of things that lead to incredible uh, destruction of property as well as uh, to death. That I can have a confidence as I come to understand those things that my studying uh the science, the, the tectonics, uh the volcanism, all of those sorts of things helps me to be a wise citizen, right? Who do I vote for? Uh, what sorts of decisions do I make when I purchase a house, or can I provide counsel to someone else about where they, you know, should they you buy this house on this? mountain slope in California, right? Uh, I'm reminded of of John McPhee's book, uh, The Control of Nature. and one of the three sort of cases that he talked about was the the system of of wildfires and and landslides. Well those sorts of things I that can help me make decisions on a day-to-day basis as, as I come to understand uh, these earth processes, But it also drives me back uh, to the creator and sustainer who is in control of all of these things. And he has set these these processes into motion and he has given us tools so that we can come to understand these so that we can make wise decisions uh, as as humans going forth in, in our lives. I'm, I wanted to mention a book by Marsha Bjornarud, uh, Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. And of course, in the book, she's not talking about saving the world uh, in the sense that Jesus is, has come to, to save. But uh, again, sort of as McDougall says in his book, we can decode the past and that can help us to anticipate the future. And it helps us as, as we go through life, it doesn't mean that we never face disasters, but it helps me to realize that God has given us tools. God has given us minds so that we can understand these processes so that going forward, we can make better decisions as humans uh, on, on how we live and where we live. And also that at the same time, as I, as I think about as, I quoted before uh, Ronald Parker the idea that these catastrophes all have to do with energy that is 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 built up that in well God sees what all of that Steve, you
0: know as we study deep time we get an appreciation of the benefit we get from wildfires from earthquakes from hurricanes is that We're living on a planet where we have the ideal rate and intensity of these things we call natural disasters. And it was Jesus that told us in John 16, uh, you know, in this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That we're temporarily in this place where these things happen. But it's the same Jesus who said, don't build your house on the sand, build it on the rock. I mean, I live in Southern California at the base of the San Gabriel mountains. Our home is rising by nine millimeters per year. I tell my sons we're the owners of future mountain property, but uh-huh. it also means that I have to have a home with twice as much lumber in it as your homes in Alabama, because we get earthquakes. And, uh, you know, if you're going to want to survive at magnitude seven earthquake, it's important that we invest. And likewise, It's probably not a good idea uh, to take your aged parents and put them in a mobile home uh, on the uh, east side of a Florida beach, because that's where hurricanes come in. If you do insist on having a home there, make sure it's hurricane proof. And so, you know, God tells us to be wise, but to also appreciate everything on earth in terms of what we call natural disasters is actually fine-tuned. Things would be a whole lot worse if there are no wildfires. Things would be a whole lot worse if there are no hurricanes. God has designed it so we have just the right number and intensity of these things. But He also says, You guys are managers. I've put you in charge of the planet. You're to manage it for your benefit, the benefit of life. And that means don't build your house on sand, build it on the rock. Uh, you know, recognize I've given you the capacity to study the resources of the earth. Use that to be wise and gracious, and how you manage things. You know, I think with this conversation it could go on for quite a few more hours, weeks. In fact, I'm I want to encourage you, Steve. A lot of what you're saying be good to put into writing, and uh, we do have a a reasons to believe scholar blog. So, if you ever had the time uh, to put this down in some uh, short articles, I uh, really encourage you to think about that because. What you're saying is what a lot of our constituents really need to hear. We look forward to having you back on the show as well. Uh, So with that, uh, let me uh, just thank all of you for joining us today on Stars, Cells, and God. You can join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. New episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Thursday and are available here and on YouTube, and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend uh, or a relative, and remember, the more we learn about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. Thank you for joining us today.